I just want to begin this year with a um, very interesting event, which I think uh, has it's an astronomical event, which um, basically has, I think, a lot of significance. And that is that Cheshvan is a special month. And, uh, and I want to point that out why. Anyway, before I begin, uh, this year should be a merit for the health and success of the families of Regina Bas Yosef Ruvain and Yeshaya ben Yisrael and Benjamin Wolf ben Tzvihesh and Baruch ben Benjamin Wolf. Uh, also, it should be for Refor Shalema for David Tzvi ben Sora. He should have a Refor Shalema. Okay. Also, Rina Batsol, Refor Shalema. And also Rina Batsol. Yes. Rina Batsol, uh, she should also have a Refor Shalema. Okay. <clears throat> Um, so therefore, Cheshvan <clears throat> uh, is a very special month, which is really very interesting. And, the, and so therefore, um, in fact, Cheshvan really is a messianic month, which is interesting. And the first sign of that is of all the months of the year, Cheshvan is the only month that has no Yom uh, Kodosh. No holiday of any sort, whether it be a regular holiday, whether it be a fast day, whatever. It has no day which, uh, you know, is considered some, uh, some type of a holy day. And therefore, they refer to it as Mar Cheshvan, bitter Cheshvan. <clears throat> and one of the reasons for that, so the question is, in the end of time, how is Cheshvan, the month, going to be consoled? Imagine the entire history of the Jewish people. There's not one important day, uh, you know, a holiday or whatever that occurs on Cheshvan. And that, like I say, and that's why we refer to it as Mar Cheshvan, the bitter Cheshvan. How is it going to be consoled? Well, the answer is, uh, basically, is that that month is a messianic month. In some way, Cheshvan may be the start of the turnaround. It may be the start of the release of Mashiach ben Yosef in terms of Cheshvan. So there's something of an, a messianic uh, occurrence that happens in Cheshvan. And that's why in the end of time it will be the greatest month of all because the redemption in a certain way whatever stage of the redemption, will happen in Cheshvan. Chesh, in, in the second thing, which is very interesting, is Cheshvan also, Yud Aleph Cheshvan, the 11th day of Cheshvan, right, uh, is the yacht side of Rochel Imenu. And Rochel Imenu died on Yud Aleph Cheshvan, as we, you can easily attest to, because that's when all the people in Eretz Yisrael go to Hakever. And we know that Rochel Imenu was responsible for the redemption. She's the one who prayed. They stopped at her grave on the way to Babylon in the exile of Bovel. They stopped at her gravesite and they prayed that she should intercede. And lo and behold, I once uh, gave this, uh, spoke about this 
on, I think, Yudal Cheshvan Shir or Tishbab Shir, whatever, that she was successful. And therefore God said that, you know, originally I was going to exile them all the way till the Messianic era. But now I'll only exile them in Babylon for 70 years. So she actually turned around the exile, you see? And as a result of that, she is known as the mother of redemption. In fact, the Haftorah, which is dedicated to her, which is Yimio 31, Mamad Aleph, it talks about her. And God says to her, you know, that, uh, you know, draw your tears because I will yet bring back the Jewish people to their land. So she is no, known uh, as the mother of redemption. And her yacht site, she died on Yud Aleph Cheshvan to be buried in that place where the Jews would go past there and they would, of course, in, ask her to intercede, and she would. So the day of her death, which is Yud Aleph Cheshvan, is a very important <clears throat> day, you see, because she died at that, on that day because that was the place that the Jews would go through and they would ask her to intercede and she would be successful. So therefore, Yud Aleph Cheshvan, which is her Yod site, is a very propitious day for some type of messianic uh, situation. So that's a second idea. A third idea is really I want to give that Yud Aleph Cheshvan is the day that the Orishan, which is the messianic light, the Orishan, the first light, or the Or Mashiach, the messianic light, was supposed to come down to the world. But it didn't. Instead, its physical analog, which was water, the marble, happened not on the 11th, but on the 17th and 18th of Cheshvan, because on Yud Aleph Cheshvan, Mesushelach, the oldest person who ever lived, 969 years, he died. And the Rabbanish Shalom, God did not want to intercede or distract uh, to bring the marble on the, day, the first day of his death, because it would take seven days for the Shiva. And that ended on the 17th, 18th day, so the marble, which should have been the Orishan, became the marble and destroyed the world. And I had uh, spoken about that, you know, in terms of Noyach and in terms of uh, Yud Aleph Cheshvan and so on. In any case, so therefore Yud Aleph Cheshvan is really a day that the Orishan, the Or Mashiach, the Or Hagonas, the concealed light, seems to happen. So that's a third concept of why Cheshvan is so important. Now, therefore, Cheshvan is not an ordinary month, you see. And therefore, what's interesting is that on Rosh Chodesh Cheshvan, there was a solar eclipse on that day. Now, we know that an eclipse can only happen on Rosh Chodesh because the moon goes in front of the sun. But most of the times, the moon is above the sun, or below the sun. But sometimes it goes right across the sun and it blocks the sun's light. That is called a solar eclipse. And therefore, on Rosh Chodesh was the, is the only time that an eclipse can happen. Well, guess what? It happened on Rosh Chodesh Cheshvan. And a solar eclipse 
means that it's a very bad sign for the Goyim. So, uh, like I once said, for there to be a solar eclipse on Cheshvan, which is a Messianic month, is a very good sign for the Jews. And you never know. Maybe this month is it. Maybe this month will be the turnaround. You know, like I say, uh, because if you recall, I had predicted also <clears throat> in Teves, if you remember, um, that um, in Hanukkah I gave the whole shir, there was a solar eclipse in Rosh Teves, which is the month of Esav, right? And I predicted that Esav will have a terrible time, and right after that you had the collapse of Russia, Europe, and the United States, and they're all collapsing. In any case, so hopefully this will happen, that this month will be the beginning of the turnaround and the initiation of the Messianic process. Anyway, I think that was worthy of mentioning, you know, for those people who certainly have hope for the uh, Mashiach to come. Now, what I wanted to speak about is... um, Parshas Lech which is very, very interesting, you see. And uh, we, we know the basic storyline of Parshas Lech right, is Avram Avinu, right? Avram Avinu was commanded by God to leave Choron, which, by the way, they say is in modern-day Turkey, southeast Turkey, not far from Syria. Anyway, to leave and to go to Israel, and subsequently there was a famine, and then he went to Egypt and so on. Uh, and the when you look at you know when you look at the story of Lechlecho and Avram Avinu, and how he was designated by God to begin the whole process of uh, rectification of creation, it's really very strange. And I'd like to talk about that. Because it has tremendous amount of lessons, messages for we, the Jewish people. And I'd just like to comment on these ideas. It's a strange, really, it's really a strange start. I mean, let's take a look at some of the ideas or the events that are really, uh, like I say, strange to begin with. First of all, Avraham Avinu is 75 years old. Now, even in those days when people lived to an older age, you know, they'd live to 900, so let's say they'd live to 105 or whatever, they were old men. A 75-year-old, even at that time, is an old man. It's not a young guy. So the question is, you know, the Rabbanisham could have appeared to Avram Avinu, right, when he was 30. What a difference. Then Avram Avinu would have had all the youth the energy, the dynamism of a young guy. I would imagine it would be a lot easier for him to do whatever he was charged with. So why would the Bosham appear to an old man, 75 years old? You know, how much energy does he really have? I mean, obviously we find the same thing by Moshe Rabbeinu. And Moshe Rabbeinu is 80 years old. That is an old man. So why would he do that? That's the first strange idea about this story. <clears throat> Second thing is he tells Avramovino, 
you know, you have to leave who? You have to leave the, your place, your birthplace. You got to leave Beis Avicho. You have to leave your whole family. Do you know how difficult it is? You're 75 years old, and you're obviously thinking of retirement or whatever, and all of a sudden you have to leave everybody that you know, your, you know, your family and your friends. Very difficult, you know. Yet we find that the Rosham told them, Lech l'cho me'arzacho, your land, right? Me'ladadacho, your birthplace, and be'besovicho, and from your father's home, which means your whole family, and your friends, and everybody, you know, that you're close to. So again, that's a strange <clears throat> request to make of an old man. Then he tells them, right, that you ha- you're going to go to El Orta Sherar Echo, to a land, right, that I will inform you of. He doesn't tell them where, right, because it's important for somebody that's going to travel to have an, an, an idea of where he's going, because usually you want to be secure about that, so you make preparations. But he has no idea where he's going. So what the Rosham did is he left them in a very insecure position. You see, he couldn't even prepare and think about where he's going and so on uh, and how to get there and, and so on. Why did he do that? Besides, when you go to a new place, he's not going for a vacation. He's going to live there. You know how difficult it is for an older person to adjust uh, to a new place? Remember, he left his whole family behind. So he's got to adjust to a completely new place, new people, right? And so on. How does he do that? And then what about Panosa? You know, it's not clear what Avroma Vino did. He probably was a, a shepherd, because that's what he, you know, they did later, you know. So, you know, how do you make a Panosa in a new place? He doesn't even know where he's going. You see, <clears throat> these ideas are very strange. They increase enormously the difficulty of what the Rabbanishlam was asking him to do. Then what happens? He finally gets to Eretz Israel, and lo and behold, there's a phenomenal famine. It was one of the worst famines in human history, you see. All of a sudden, there's a famine. So could you imagine... He gets to the land, I would imagine you could call it the promised land, because the Bershom is telling him to go there. And then when he gets there, this is unbelievable famine, right? And everybody's starving. So he's got to decide, well, what do I do? I can't stay here. There's no food. Now, obviously, the one who orchestrated the famine is God, right? <clears throat> this doesn't happen by itself. It's amazing. Right? That the Bersham arranged a famine at the time that he gets there. What a hardship. So where does he have to go? He has to go to Egypt, where apparently there was food. Yeah, but Egypt is a tre- place of tremendous immorality. You know, tremendous promiscuity, immorality, right? I mean, it's a real tumor place. <clears throat> So, you know, may, you know, obviously, I'm sure he was incredibly spiritual where he was, but now he's not only leaving horror 
uh, so at least it was a place where he would be protected from immorality. And he's going to one of the most immoral places on the planet. You see, you know how difficult that is for a tzaddik to have to go in a mokum tumor like Egypt. This increases enormously his difficulties. And besides that, Avram Avinu realizes that his wife is a very beautiful woman. And he knows what they're going to do. Right? Pharaoh is always looking out for new pastures. And Sarah is one of them. So he realizes that, you know, if he is her husband, guess what? They're not going to hesitate to kill him and bring her to Pharaoh, you see. So the whole trip to Egypt, if you think about it, is life-threatening. Imagine that. To go to Egypt in his situation is life-threatening. Yet that's what he has to do. <clears throat> and then he's got to travel to Egypt. You know how difficult it is to travel in those days? We're not talking here about cars, trains, buses, planes, right? We're talking about camels. How do people go from Horon all the way to Eretz Israel, all the way to Egypt? You probably traveled by camel. Could you imagine sitting on a camel or whatever, travel? It was very difficult to travel in those days, you see. So he's got to travel. Not only did he have to travel from Horon to, to Israel, but he now has to go to Egypt and schlep down all across the Sinai, the, the wilderness of Sinai. Imagine what that is, uh, you see. And then what happens? Paroi kidnaps her. So Soros says, well, he's my brother. Okay, so we can let him live. Uh, meanwhile, they take her. That's called kidnapping. And that's exactly what Paro did. He kidnapped her. So now Avram Avinu doesn't have his wife. <clears throat> but the real kicker in this is that he will never have her again. Why? Because the rule is that any kind of consort to a king can never go back to a regular person because it's a bizarre to the melech, to the king. So even after he tires of her, Parai, he, she can't go back anyway to Avram Avino because that's the rule. So that's the end of his marriage. Could you imagine he's in a country and now what is he doing? Can you imagine? He's sitting in a motel in Egypt. He's broke. He's lonely. Sora has been kidnapped. Right? Could you imagine what he must be feeling like after being addressed by God to do this? <clears throat> Clearly then, he probably felt that the Rebbe had abandoned him. Because, you know, when the Rebbe says something, and the Rebbe says to him, you know, I will make your name great, right? The whole world will be blessed to you. I mean, he, he left him with tremendous amount of promise. Meanwhile, everything was the exact opposite of what he promised, right? What do you mean everybody will bless me? They, uh, they will be blessed through me. They just stole my wife. And I could never have her back, right? Uh, not only that, what do you mean my name is great? My name is Mud. 
If I ever say that she's my wife, they'll kill him, right? And so on. So it comes out that everything the Rebbe promised, the exact opposite happened. I mean, take a look at all the things I just mentioned, you know. So instead of a glorious trip, this whole trip became a nightmare, if you think about it. Why would the Rebbe do that? You see, and the answer to that is a very important concept. <clears throat> there are certain necessities, three things that the Rabbanu Shalom had to do. And in essence, that's really what the story is about. And this is, will answer the questions of why all of this nightmarish ideas happened. There are three things at that point in history that the Rabbanisham had to do. One, the Rabbanisham needed somebody to rectify creation. A masakin, you see. The second thing the Rabbanisham needed to do was that the guarantee, which is called Anagas Ayichud, which I once spoke about, that guarantee has to cover, right, in, uh, specifically, not in general, but specifically, whoever's going to be the Masakein means the one who's going to rectify creation, you see. And the third thing is that they have to now go and rectify creation. So the Roshim needs those three things at this point in time. Uh, so then the question is, who was the Masakein? Well, I had mentioned, you know, many times in the past, in the, in the beginning, the original idea of God was that man, whether Jews, should not be the Masakein. Rather, it should be mankind. Uh, that's why Oda Mauritian, he was not Jewish, he was human. Because the original intent of God was that Oda Mauritian should do the Tikkun and all his descendants. So the concept or the job of Tikkun, right, was given to mankind, not the Jewish people. The problem was, is that mankind sinned for 2,000 years. You know, you had the Mabel with Noach, then you had the Doha Flogger, the generation of dispersion, where he spread them throughout the planet and so on, right? So this is what you had, you see. So the revolution needed somebody that will do the job of Tikkun. Because mankind was not doing it. So the Bershom decided a very important uh, test. <clears throat> and here's the test. Which, by the way, has tremendous repercussions for the history of man. One, he decided that he would make two people very powerful and famous. One was Nimrod, and the other was Avram Avino, you see. So Avram Avino, of course, defied Nimrod, right, by smashing all the idols of his father Terach, right? And he decided to throw Avram Avino into a Kivshon or Ish. This was Nimrod, right? <clears throat> so the question was, and of course Avram Avino was saved. So what the Rosham decided is this test. If mankind would go after Nimrod. And we find this at the end of Pasha's Noach, 
where it says, and the earth was one language and one nation, right? So you did not have the 70 nations. You had only one in Bovel, in Babylon. In any case, there it's in the land of Shino. And the head of that was Nimrod. And that's where Avraham Avinu came from. In any case, if the people of that place, Shino, if they would follow Nimrod, right, then what the Rabbanisham would do, right, is take away the ability of mankind to do the Tikkun. He would diminish their Nishamas. Because even a Goy has a Nishama Yoyna. He has a holy soul. It's God allowed him to keep. But he would take away the Nishama that can do the Tikkun on the entire creation and give it only to Avram. Or he would allow Avram Avino to have it, you see. But if the nation followed Avram, especially after the Ness, imagine a guy gets thrown to us, an enormously hot furnace, and he walks out, survives. If they follow Avram Avinu, then he would not do that. He would allow mankind to continue to do the Tikkun. It's up to them. This was the great test by the Doha Flogger. So what did they decide? They decided to follow Nimrod and to rebel against God. Therefore, what the Roshan did is he spread them throughout. But what he really did is he took away all of their ability to do the Tikkun, you see. And the only one who remained as an individual who could do the Tikkun is Aromavino. He's the only one that remained, you see. And that's pivotal. That is why the Bershom now appeared to Avramavino to make an agreement, a covenant with him, to do the Tikkun, he and his descendants. Now, that is a very important event. Why? Because here's the story. <clears throat> as long as, you know, uh, the, uh, all mankind can do the Tikkun, right? So then either they do it or they don't. But once the Rebbe decides to take it away, from all mankind and leave it with Avram Avinu, and what's going to happen is Avram Avinu and his descendants is going to need time to do the Tikkun. But meanwhile, the rest of the mankind who used to be able to do Tikkun will sense the greatness of Avram Avinu and the Jewish people. So in the end, what they will do is kill Avram Avinu and his descendants anti-Semitism. I'm not going to go into the origin, but this is the beginning of the origin. You know, the difference in the Shamas between a Jew and a Goy. So what does that mean? Uh, that means you're going to have the nation of the world, or whatever, against Avram Avinu. And Avram Avinu is only one person, even with his descendants. Meanwhile, the rest of mankind, of course, will try to interfere with Avram and kill him. So what the Bansham therefore decided is that in order for Avram Avinu to survive and do the Tikkun with his descendants, he has to split the nations up. So he did. And that's the story of the Doha Flogger, where they rebelled against God. So what he did is he changed their language and he spread them throughout the world. So now there becomes 70 nations, right, plus the nation called Avram Avinu. 
And because they are now split, they will war against each other and let Avram Avinu and his descendants do the Tikkun. Of course, they still hate Avram Avinu. And look how much anti-Semitism resulted from this. But the reason why God you know, spread the peoples around the world, why that? is because that would be necessary in order for Avram Avinu to do the Tikkun, especially since Rabbi Hashem did not want to destroy mankind. But if he leaves them exist, the problem is they ultimately will annihilate Avram Avinu and his descendants. And therefore he has to split them into 70 nations, not one, and spread them throughout the entire world. Because that's the only way the Jewish people can survive is if the nations are split and spread throughout the world. <clears throat> now, what is interesting about this particular idea is this, is that when the nations are together, Jews will not survive. There will be an unbelievable amount of anti-Semitism. And that's the reason why God split them so the Jew and Avraham Avinu and his descendants can do the Tikkun. <clears throat> So therefore we see that when the nations are united together, they will destroy the Jews. Because then the natural proclivity or tendency to hate spirituality and to hate the one who can will arise. Therefore in the end of time, when the Tikkun is almost complete, 98% of the Tikkun is complete, then God does not need the nations to be split. Instead, he wants to bring the nations together again, you see. Uh, so therefore, it will become obvious who Avraham Avinu and who the Jews are, you see. And they all together will war against the Jewish people. Because that's always what happens when the nations are together. The natural tendency of anti-Semitism will again rise. So guess what? God puts in the mind of man that all the nations should unite. And lo and behold, in 1948, there is an institution called the United Nations. Right. Why was the UN created? <clears throat> what we now understand is the UN, right, is an undoing of the generation of dispersion. Because at that time, 40,000 years ago, you needed to split the nations. So Avraham Avinu and his descendants could do the Tikkun notwithstanding all the anti-Semitism, because now the nations fight with one another, and they pay less attention to the Jewish people. But as we approach the Messianic era, you see, then God doesn't need that anymore, because the Tikkun is 98% complete. So now it's okay for all the world to be together, as opposed to the Jewish people. And then all of them single-handedly, or as one nation, will now realize who the Jews really are. But in order to do that, God has to put in the mind of man, right, something of current events. So what they have is the idea to have a UN. And what does the UN do? It unites the nations. But wait a minute. We know that when the nations are united, what happens? They will hate the Jews. They'll use that as a platform to kill the Jews. That's exactly what happens. If you look at the UN, we know there's a double standard. 
when all the, there are so many nations in the UN that are murderers, right? Criminals, people who kill people, and so on, right? And the UN does nothing about them. Whereas in terms of the Jews, <clears throat> the whole UN, right, opposes Israel. There's resolution after resolution. I remember reading an article in those days it was called Reader's Digest and they had an article on the UN so they write something interesting they said why is it that 93% of all the resolutions of the General Assembly which is the main body of the UN why are they all anti-Israel and we now know why because that's what happens when the nations unite right the natural tendency of anti-Semitism rises <clears throat> And since we are now, in fact, the fact that there is a UN is one of the proofs that we are at the end of time. And it's one of the proofs that the Tikkun process is almost complete. And that happened, right, in 1948. So you can imagine how much closer we are, you see. Uh, so that's a very interesting historical concept, isn't it, of why there's a UN, which goes back 4,000 years of why the Bansham chose Avraham Avinu so he and his descendants can do the Tikkun. So therefore, the first spiritual requirement that the Rabbanisham needed, right, is he needed a Masakin. And therefore, he instituted the test between Avraham Avinu and Nimrod. <clears throat> now, the second thing that happened is that Avraham Avinu said to the Bansham, in the Brisbane Absurdum, the covenant between the pieces, he said, look, I understand that you want me to do the Tikkun and so on, right? However, what happens if the Jews sin, right? You're going to destroy them like you destroyed the nations of the world, the Mabel. So what's the point? What's the guarantee? Because I'm sure that my descendants will sin. And so the Rabbanishim said, look, I have an Hoga called Yichud, the conduct, the behavior that I exhibit to guarantee that the world must continue, right? That covers mankind in general, but not any specific nation. But now that you're the Masakin and nobody else is, I will guarantee the existence and survival of the Jewish people to do the Tikkun. And that, by the way, is why it is impossible to kill the Jewish people en masse. Yes, um, Jews must survive somewhere to continue the Tikkun. Oh yeah, they can be punished on a national level, but they cannot be destroyed, and it doesn't make a difference. <clears throat> the last one who could have destroyed the Jewish people en masse, all of them, was Ahasuerus. That was the last time in history that the entire Jewish people was under the control or the sovereignty of one king. That's why Haman was so dangerous, you see, <clears throat> because he could have wiped out every Jew. But obviously, he didn't, because they have the Anogos that protects them. So obviously, he was killed, and obviously, none of the Jews, because they did tshuva. But in any case, this is a very important idea. So that was the second requirement. Not only does he appoint Avraham Avinu to be a Masakin, right? But the second thing he does is he now changes the attribute of guarantee that they will cover specifically the Jewish people. 
And the third requirement is he now tells Avram Avinu, look, they must do the tikkun. So there is a masakin, namely you and the Jews. The Anogas now exists, and that is manifest in the agreement itself, where it says that Avram Avinu, that God went through the pieces of the covenant, because that's what the covenant was, where you would cut an animal in half, and God would go through as an agreement. He went through as a torch and as a furnace. So the torches, if the Jews do the tikkun in the correct way, then God will go through as light, you see. But if they don't, then the Anhogas HaYichud will protect them, and I will go through as a furnace. And Rashi says that this furnace represents Gehenim, right? And that means that they will suffer in order to have a kapora and so on, and therefore their existence will be guaranteed. Either way, they will do the tikkun, you see, because what the Rosham needed was since Avraham Avinu would now do the tikkun, now it wasn't sufficient to do the tikkun, right, that remains. He had to, because if you can do tikkun, you can also do kilko. In other words, if you can rectify creation, you can also damage creation, so what the Rav needed, right, is Avram Avinu and his descendants have to undo all the damage that mankind, when they had the ability of Tikkun, they had to undo that. And therefore the way they would have to undo that is they have to go into a nation, right, that represents the evil, the satanic evil and so on, and remain righteous. That was the whole point of Egypt, you see, because that was the way the Jews could do the tikkun, you see, by undoing all the damage that mankind did for 2,000 years. The Jews would have to undo that, and how would they undo that? By remaining righteous in a land called Egypt, you see. And if they didn't, then if they didn't do the tikkun, then they would have to suffer, and they would do the tikkun through the suffering and, and, and so on. But in any case, God required all three things. He needed a Masagen, which I've just explained. He needed Hanogas Yichud to especially guarantee the survival of the Jews. And he had to have Avraham Avinu and his descendants, right, to undo the kilko, the damage of 2,000 years because remember, if you could do the tikkun, then you could also damage creation. So since everybody until Avraham Avinu could do the tikkun, he had to undo their kilko, their damage. You see? So he needed those three things. That's a very important idea. And this is a significance of Lech Lecha. You begin to realize this is fundamental to the whole mission of the Jew who took over what mankind should have done, you see. And therefore what God did, he said, okay, this is what I need to do, right? To have to do the tikkun and so on. But I have to send them now lessons, right? They have to learn the lessons in order to be able to do this. So the first thing he needed to do was to test the loyalty of Avram Avinu, right, you see, 
to test the loyalty of Avram Avinu. And therefore, he wanted Avram Avinu to begin this sense of mission as an old man, you see, not a young man, for two reasons. As an old man, if he would do this, that would test Avram Avinu's loyalty, that even as an old man, he would do what God wants. So this is a loyalty test. The second reason why he wanted Avram Tavdvinu to initiate this as an old man, right, is to avoid the mistake. Because you could say, well, Avram Avinu was an incredibly dynamic leader, a young guy, and because he was young with energy and, and vitality, that's why he was able to do what he did. So God said, no, he's going to be an old man, right? So obviously it's not because he's dynamic and youthful. On the contrary, the only reason why I could do the tikkun is because of me, because of God. So by choosing an old man, God would prove that all of this would be because of God's assistance and not because of his own character. In fact, that's the reason why, one of the reasons why Moshe stuttered. Because we could say, well, Moshe was an incredible orator. But the truth is, he wasn't. Because he stuttered. You see? So, because the Moshe wanted to show that the ones who are commanding him to do everything is God, not Moshe. Because Moshe had a stuttering problem. And that's, the, that's, that's not the only reason why. But that clearly indicates, well, he couldn't have done it by himself because the man stuttered. So what kind of speaker is he? Same thing with Avraham Avinu. Obviously, he couldn't have done it himself. The guy's an old man. It has to be because Rabbanisham assisted him to do the whole tikkun. It's a very important concept. But certainly, he needed the loyalty. The second thing that Rabbanisham showed Avraham Avinu is that this is not going to be a picnic. This is very hard. The path to tikkun is a very difficult path. You know, you think... Well, now that he's going to go to the promised land, every, everything is going to be, as they say in English, hunky-dory. No way. You see? You're going to come to a place that makes no sense. Eretz Israel in the middle of a famine. And you're going to then have to go to Egypt in the middle of the Tumor. All right? You mean this is what I have to do to do the Tikkun? Yes. This is a very hard job. It's like a warning to Avram Avinu. Don't think... This is going to be a picnic. No. It's going to be a very hard job. That's the second lesson that the Bersham had to tell Avram Avino. You see. Then the Bersham had to show Avram Avino that I want to tell you something. You think that I'm going to always look consistent? No. I'm going to look at you with constant contradictions. Right. Are you going to say, I don't believe what's happening? You tell me to go to Eretz Israel, right? And when I get there, it's not the promised land, right? It's filled with the worst kind of famine. What a contradiction. Uh, you see, in terms of what the Rav commanded. So what the Rav was telling him is, uh-uh, this is what it's all about. It's going to look like I'm contradicting myself. But really, it's part of my anhogah. This is the way it has to go. You see? So you need to understand. You need to have bitochen, trust. You need to trust me that even though everything looks contradictory, right? It's not contradictory, really. It only looks contradictory to you. 
But in the end, it will all work out. So that's the next lesson, you see, <clears throat> that the Barsham is telling them. That number, not only will there be a contradictions, right, but you have to have bitochen, that there are no contradictions. And that's one of the ideas of the, uh, the Akedah, you know, <coughs> which I once spoke about, the whole sheer on that. <clears throat> you know, the arcade looks like a tremendous contradiction, but it wasn't, you see. In any case, so that was another lesson that Avram Avinu had to learn. You see, all these lessons he has to learn because he has now been de- designated, right, as a tikkun. Not only that, but Avram Avinu realizes something else. He's an old man. How in the world can he change the world? You see, and not only that, he has no kids. I mean, Sarah's what? She's 90 years old. And he's a hundred. How in the world can he possibly have kids? So that's another lesson that the Bonsham is teaching him. You see, why? Because the Jewish people exist only through miracles. The whole origin of the Jewish people, that Sora at 90 had a child, is a nest niglo. It's an open miracle. It's impossible, in fact. In fact, when Yitzchak was born, everybody thought, Paro is the father, you see. And then he made Yitzchak look like Avram Avinu, so they realized it wasn't. But how in the world can a 90-year-old woman have a child? Impossible, right? Like Yisora said, self, uh, she herself said is impossible. But the Jews exist because of a miracle. The whole Anhoga, the whole behavior of the Jewish people is miraculous from their birth to their survival and their ability to do tikkun. So we see something very important. All of these are lessons that the Bosham had to give Avram Avinu in order that he should have these basic beliefs to surmount all the incredible amount of obstacles. And that's why he told them, you have to get away from, you know, uh, Horan and your entire family. Uh, because in order for you to do the tikkun, you need to leave the tumor. And we know that Terach, the father of Ramavino and the whole family, they were steeped in Avodah You see? So that is one of the requirements to do the Tikkun, is don't mingle with evil. Don't mingle with Tumah. You have to separate yourself. You see? And you have to have Bitochen, which I said is one of the lessons, right? Is one of the lessons that Avramavino had, you see? And by introducing a famine to Eretz Israel, the Rosham told them, your life, the whole history of the Jewish people is going to be filled with contradictions. Right? Contradictions. That I promised one thing, and I seem to be de- delivering something else. You see. Because you have to learn that the way I act, God is saying, is beyond your comprehension. You see. But in the end, it will all fit in. It will all make sense. So you need to have bitochen, trust, that everything I'm doing is gamzul is only to allow you to do the tikkun and therefore to get ilm habo, you see. And even though Egypt is life-threatening, that's the sacrifice that God requires of Jews, you see, that you have to do the tikkun, you have to do my will, even though 
it could be, as I said, life-threatened. And the concept of Pharaoh taking, right? Could you imagine Pharaoh takes Sarah, right? And that's it. That's the end of the marriage because she cannot go back to Avram Avinu because she is the consort of a king. So could you imagine Avram Avinu is an old man and his wife is gone? Could you imagine sitting in, in some motel, right, in Thebes, which is Luxor in those days, right? And he's completely alone. There's nothing there. Not only that, he must have a tremendous feeling that the Rebbe abandoned him. Could you imagine what kind of a test he had? You know, we think about it, you know. Could you imagine if you were in his, his shoes, right? And after visiting you and promising you such incredible glory, where the whole world will be blessed through you, right? All of a sudden, everything turns around. It's a nightmare, isn't it? Right? You have to maintain. You have to maintain that trust in God. So we understand something very interesting, that God had three requirements that was critical, and that's what Lech Lecha is. One, he needs somebody to do the tikkun, and he provides the last test for mankind, which has repercussions in current events. The second thing he needs is that the guarantee that there will be a nation in Olim Haba now devolves upon the Jewish people. And the third thing is that they, Avram and the Jewish people, have to go and undo all the kilku, the damage, of course, of all mankind's sinning for 2,000 years. And that's exactly what happened. And that's why they had to go to Egypt to remain righteous. In any case, and therefore, he had to teach Avram Avinu these incredibly important lessons, right? What are the lessons? One, you must be loyal. No matter what happens, right? You need to be loyal to God and do what he wants. Second lesson, Tikkun is going to be very hard. This is not a picnic, as I said. And you have to be prepared to accept that, that it's not going to be easy. You see, not easy always to do a mitzvah, especially in a place of tremendous amount of temptations. Third lesson, I'm going to appear in many ways as contradictory, right? And you're going to say, this doesn't make any sense. Boisham doesn't do this. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. You must accept the contradictions and realize that this is known only to God why he has to act this way, right? But in the end, it's all part of the tikkun, you see? And therefore, you must have bitokhan. Very important idea. The next lesson is that the tikkun can only happen through miracles. The Jews can only do the tikkun. They can only survive. It's all based on nisim, miraculous ideas, miracles. And the Jews have to understand that because it's miracles, they will get the job done. And that is a very important idea. And what was interesting, by the way, is Avram Avinu became tremendously wealthy. You know who made him wealthy? Parai. Because Parai realizing when the Bansham appeared, and he shut down every orifice 
and the entire palace's body, every, all their bodies, that was it. Every excretory function ceased. And obviously they were not going to survive more than a day or two. They realized what is going on, you see? And therefore, Pare realized who Avramovino is. This is not an ordinary man. Do you imagine? And he's Paroi, the great Paroi of Egypt, right? The king of Egypt, right? And in the eyes of God, this man's a zero plus his entire nation, right? And that God will do the bidding of Avram to help him and save him. So he realized who Avram Avinu was. And as a result of that, right, he gave him a tremendous amount of cattle, sheep, gold, jewelry, whatever. And in many ways, he's the one who gave Avram Avinu tremendous amount of wealth. And also, by the way, Hagar, who's the prince, uh, she was a princess of Egypt, that's why she left Paroi and she joined Avram Avinu. Because she'd rather be a maidservant in the house of Avram Avinu such an incredibly holy man, right, than be a princess of Egypt. So what comes out of this is very interesting. It's a paradox. The very nightmare situation that he had, sitting in this motel in the middle of the night and wondering that's the end of his marriage. In fact, that's the end of his mission. How in the world is he going to get out of this mess? It's impossible. That is the very situation that made him fabulously wealthy. You see, go figure how the Rav can pull this off. That he could take your nightmare, and night, that nightmare itself becomes the vehicle for your salvation. Amazing, isn't it? And that's what Avraham Avinu realized. So now we understand Lech Lecho is not merely a parasha. It is what's called the rules of how to do the Tikkun. It is the basic understanding and the beliefs that you need to have to engage in the entire Tikkun process. And that's why we have this strange story of Avrom Avinu in Pasha's Lech Lecho. Any questions? So in order for, the, um, for us to be redeemed, do we, uh, is it the same way, like through strange where the Jews are going to be put in these circumstances right. and then we're waiting for that miracle? Right. Exactly what happened to Avraham Avinu happens to the Jews. Same thing. It not all of it happens to one person, obviously, but every Jew experiences in his life mysteries that he cannot understand. Why did this happen? How come I met that guy? Why did I lose my job? All of this happens to the Jewish people. You know, different aspects of the lessons that I've said that the Bunchman has to show, teach Avraham Avinu. Right. Because the Tikkun is not a simple job. It entails a tremendous amount of mysteries. Not only what's obvious, but the Anodas demands is the way to get Jews into Ilm Habo, even though we don't understand it. But in the end, in the Messianic era, all of this will be revealed. The logic of every act of God will be revealed, you see. But this is what happens. This is all part of the Tikkun process. And it had to be demonstrated to Avraham Avinu. 
the same thing happened to Moshe when he was chosen, and then we had the decree of the straw. So right. are, we, are we also expecting that with <coughs> Mashiach ben Yosef? Are we also expecting what? That with Mashiach ben Yosef, meaning, okay, let's say you're right, God willing, uh, the eclipse on Hashem was great, and he was released. Now, are we expecting it to get worse because that was the pattern? Yes, and I, I gave you a whole share on that. Exactly, that I uh, is what I said. That is why Trump, who initiates the Mashiach of Edom, was dumped. Exactly, and that's why Biden took over, because evil has to have its due, because justice demands that both sides, right, have free expression, and therefore God said, "Okay, I'm giving you complete dominion." And that is why you see these Rishoyim, incredible, the media, Biden, you know, the Democratic Party, the progressives, you can't believe what's going on, the immorality, you know, the, 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 the education, all about perversions. I mean, it's hard to believe America has become this, uh, because all of it means is that evil has been given dominion. And the same thing in Eretz Israel. You know, it's one of the worst governments, if not the worst government, against Judaism that Israel has ever seen, right? Where the era of Rav has complete shlita, dominion, right? That is the equivalent of the straw. But like I once said, because all of it has to satis- satisfy justice. So how do we know that there, the evil has gotten its fill? Meaning now we have elections coming, and... Uh, Well, that is why, yes, that is why the election in Israel on November 1st and the election in America on November 8th is critical. If the Democratic Party gets slaughtered, then that is the beginning of the end of the evil decree that they should have, you know, uh, free reign. It's over, you see. In fact, one of the things which is interesting, one of the things that they can do and that's how they control everybody, is the social media censorship. It's unbelievable. If you say the wrong thing that they don't like, which is against democratic, uh, 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 you know, the, uh, the policies of the Democratic Party, they'll kick you out of, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it, um, uh, Twitter or Facebook or whatever. But what's happened is that Elon Musk has now taken over Twitter. And he's going to make it an open platform. That is a tremendous blow to the Democratic Party. Because now, even if they all hide, that's how they survive. That's how they dominate. Because the media does not report anything. It does not report any of the evil. So the amazing thing is is, uh, Musk has now damaged their conspiracy, their cover-up. That has to mean the end. So, Rabbi, when you said, Rabbi, when you said this is a good month for the Jews, is that what you're yes. meaning? Is that Hashem is trying now to put things in place? Right. That, okay. Right. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So the fact that Musk has bought Twitter is a very good sign, and the next very important sign, obviously, is the Israeli elections, and also, obviously, November eighth to see what happens, because if the Democratic but, Party gets crushed. That is the beginning of the end of evil. 
right? And most of right the Republicans side. believe in God. Most of them are, yeah, they're right. always invoking God in it. So yes. maybe we, it will be a turnaround. Maybe. Okay. Look, we'll know in less than two weeks. But Rabbi, but we, but, uh, they say that there's going to be a lunar eclipse on November 8th. And a lunar eclipse is... So how do you... How do we explain that? Does the solar well, eclipse... Well, I... Um, yeah. A lunar eclipse? How do we... How do we... The, way I, the way I could explain it, you know, although it is, uh, you know, rather strange, uh, <clears throat> is that there's a last attempt of the evil to dominate. So... The, the lunar eclipse is like the last resurgence of evil. But I think it's be, been completely overshadowed by a solar eclipse. You know? So the fact that both of them happen in the same month, and that month happens to be the messianic month of Hezron, I think uh, bodes tremendously good for the Jewish people. Now, notwithstanding the attempt of evil to dominate, the solar eclipse means they lost. Because that is uh, much more significant, I believe, a solar eclipse than a lunar eclipse. You see. Okay, that's good news. Well, that's my feeling. So now, do you think because, okay, because we know that there's going to be voter fraud and they're going to cheat their way through to try to, you know, we'll wake up in the morning and, and you know, like what happened with Trump. He was winning, he went to sleep, and then he woke up and he's lost. So... think because Elon, Elon Musk bought Twitter that more of the, you know, all their sneakiness could be right. uncovered. Revealed. Right, exactly. And that was the problem because Trump did not have the media supporting him. So right. it was really a one-way story. But if you have Twitter, do you know that Facebook lost, lost 20% of their stock value? Mm-hmm. Because... Mm-hmm. Because everybody's going over to Twitter. Yeah. Well, that itself, you, could you imagine, I think they have a billion subscribers. Could you imagine what 20% of losses? And that's only now. You see, it's because people don't want to be restricted and censored. So they're all moving over to Twitter. So therefore, they cannot get away with anything that they want to do. It'll be exposed you know, and that's the last thing they want is any kind of exposure. Until now, one of the problems that Trump had is that there's nobody willing to, you know, reveal it. So they got away with it, but not now. And besides, I think there will be a greater vigilance because everybody's aware of what these guys are probably planning. So we I'm have sure a lot they're going to. watchers. They have a lot of cold water. Right, now. right. I'm sure they're going to take actions, you know, to try to prevent, because they're now aware of what these guys are going to do, you know. Rabbi, can I ask you, this is Soraya, can I ask you about uh, what's happening with Kanye West and, and all of the Balagon that he's creating and people are you know, the banner in California and all of these anti-Semitic... Well, Kanye, you know, look, I mean, I don't really know much about this guy. What is he, a rapper of some sort? Whatever, yeah. anyway. I mean, who is he? He's basically a nobody. You know, he's just a very wealthy guy, whatever. 
But all it is is the old anti-Semitic things. Uh, I, I find it very interesting that he's had a t- tremendous reaction against him. You know how many companies have dumped him? I mean, yeah. that guy has to have lost hundreds of millions of dollars. He had a contact with Adidas. I mean, that's worth a fortune. And his only agent quit. I mean, you know, I'm sure he's saying to himself, boy, am I stupid. Even if I felt this way, why should I have said it openly and publicly? I'm sure that's what he's saying. What do I need this for? And he is an idiot. Even if you feel this way, you know, how do you go and say and publicize this? Because a great deal of the world, you know, they don't want to be anti-Semitic. Even though there are many people that do anti-Semitic acts, but there is a lot part of the world that will not tolerate it. You see? He made an incredible mistake. You see? And that's an oinish. I mean, I have no idea who he is or what he is, but, you know, he's going to suffer terribly because of this. I mean, he's still worth hundreds of millions of dollars, I understand. But that's, that's how I see it. Is Cheshvan the month of Esav or the month of Yaakov? It's the month of Yaakov. Oh, okay. Okay, so Rabbi, okay. what should we do specifically on the 11th of Cheshvan on Rachel Emenu's yard site? Uh, well, you know, it's her yard site. Um, maybe I think would be would be interesting, by the way, you know, there's a lot of things going on in Rachel Imenu's Yotzite, uh, actually in Hokever. There are, I think, seven or eight Koylelim in Hokever. I don't know if you realize that. There, there's, there's round-the-clock learning going on at her gravesite. So I think what could be interesting is to call them up and to make a donation to keep the Torah going in the name of... Uh, and you can give your name in and request a tefillah, shidduch, whatever you need, parnasa and so on, you know, is to make a donation to Kevar Rochel before the 11th of, uh, before the 11th of uh, Cheshvan. Yep. That would be very appropriate. Do you have the number, Rabbi? Do I have the number? Do I have the number? I'm not sure. But you should be able to find it. You know what you do? Go on the internet. Rochli Menu Keva Rochli Menu. I'm sure it's on the internet. I mean, it's well known. You shouldn't have a problem. I mean, they've been advertising, actually. You know? Rabbi, you so, want to hear something interesting? Take, wait, take yeah. yourself off the speaker. Yeah. The name Abraham Avinu has all the ten Nisyanot as a remez. <laughs> yeah, hello? Talk louder, Rita. If you, if you spell out the name Abraham Avinu, yeah. each letter stands for another one of his Nisyanot, one of his ten. Oh, yeah? That's interesting. Okay. If you spell Abraham, Aleph, or Kazim, then... The Resh was the Ra'ab in the land. The Ace, the head was Hagar when he had to get rid of her. The Mem was Milchamet HaMelachim, the, the, the war with the four kings, with the five kings who went to save Lord. Yeah, yeah. Aleph Abinu is Abimelech when he had to go to the fight again. Then the yeah. Is the 
Akeda, the Nun is Navinad when he has to go travel Lech Lecha, like a yeah. Nomad. And Very nice. Last last letter, the Vaz is Tacha Isha Bet Paro when they took his wife to Paro's palace. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah, very nice. Okay. God willing, with his merit and the merit of Rachel Imenu, and this is the month of Sarai Imenu's your site also this month, no? Right. Yes, it right. is. Right. When is Sarai die? What was that? Next week is Lech Lecha. In two more weeks, it's going to be her... Uh, her yes, her right, her. yeah. Right, yeah. <clears throat> right. So this is a month of very powerful people to pray for on Israel. Right. By the way, Yud Aleph Cheshvan is my birthday. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Happy, birthday. happy birthday. Thank you. So, happy uh, birthday. Thanks, yes. Yeah. So uh, to me, the month has a special significance because it's my birthday, Yud Aleph Cheshvan. It, that's yeah. the yot side of Rochli Bino, yeah. correct? It's a, no, it's really the Od Harishon. It's all that. Yes. Right? She was, uh, the yot side of Rochli Bino is Yud Aleph Cheshvan, and that was the day the marble should have happened, which is the origin, right? It's all Yud Aleph Cheshvan. Wow. Anyway. Do you think that the Republicans are going to win? I'm, I'm hoping that it's going to be a crush, that they will crush the Democrats, right? <clears throat> that this but at the end of the day, up. Rabbi, at the end of the day, if Hashem wants it to be changed, it will be changed, right? Of course. Really, it's, of well, course. it's really all. We have to do our part by voting. Right. Oh, yeah. You have to vote. Of course, yeah. And whatever you do, don't vote for Hokel. <laughs> she is a, she is she is destroying New York State. Yes. She's a very evil woman. Very. Yeah. Zeldin hopefully will be able to turn it around. What they've done to New York State is terrible. Yes. You know. Yes. And if God forbid we would, we are losing. If what? God forbid. God forbid. I know, but if, God forbid, we do lose, Hashem is trying to show us that we didn't do enough, we're not relying on Him enough, we're not... Well, it's hard to know, but the main idea is that it's not the time. There's still more, there is still more to do. 